In Jerusalem, there was a man named Simeon. He was good and and a godly man. He was waiting for God's promise to Israel to come true. The Holy Spirit was with him. The Spirit had told Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. The Spirit led him into the temple courtyard. They came to do for him what the law required. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He said, Lord, you are the king over all. Now let me, your servant, go in peace. That is what you promised. My eyes have seen you, seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the sight of all nations. It is a light to be given to the Gentiles. It will be the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother were amazed at what was said about him. Nicely done. Thank you. Children's Church. I'm almost got it down. Would you pray with me as we begin today? Father, um, again, I ask that you would help me to step into the shadows so that you might come into the light and be forefront in uh, in all that we do say and hear in these coming moments. Um, May we have ears to hear, and may the truth that you reveal to us be a seed that produces, produces fruit abundantly in our lives and uh, abundantly in this world that needs to know you and needs to experience you, needs to see your light. We thank you for the word, for the truth it holds and um, we just look forward, Father, today as you would uh, reveal yourself to us in it, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I drove down this morning from North Kansas City and I got to tell you, pretty ugly day out there really not uh not not too spectacular kind of gloomy gray uh you know it's that time of the year too when the 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 uh, trees have finally shed their glory they're all gone barren trees uh gray skies gloomy landscape and we're kind of in that in-between period aren't we now i how many of you like winter snow at least some you okay i don't want to make people mad i love winter snow and so we're kind of in that waiting period of, uh, okay, <laughs> I didn't hear that. What was that? Did I get heckled already? What was that? Oh. <laughs> um, we're in that, in that period, that in-between period where we've, we've enjoyed the beauty of fall and now we're waiting for maybe at least a, a nice coating of snow that at least looks pretty. You don't may, may not like to drive in it or, or be out in it, but it, it at least provides some kind of cover of white in its... And it could be very majestic looking, but we're in that period. And it just reminded me of, 
of where we're going to go this morning as we're in that period also as we move toward Christmas, but also as we move through life in general. There's a lot of waiting, isn't there? And that's really going to be the theme of what we look at this morning. Last Sunday was uh, not only the first uh, day and Sunday of December, it was the first day of Advent. And I don't know about you, but I was raised in this church tradition of uh, independent Christian church, and so we didn't really celebrate so much the liturgical days of the Christian calendar. I think we've missed out on that, though. There's a lot of good things in there that help us to orient our lives, not just during Christmas and Easter to Christian themes, but throughout the calendar. And so I, I rather like the idea of paying more attention to that. And this season of Advent, if you're not really familiar with it, the word simply means coming, and it, of course, is looking to the coming of something very special. When the word Advent's used, and even if you hear people use it out of the context of Christian or biblical language, um, it has to do with something that's coming, but something that's coming that's pretty special, something that is unique. It's reserved for those life-changing events in time. And, and so as we talk about Advent, we're talking about God poising himself ready to turn a page in the story uh, and bring us to a chapter in that story that we could have never imagined before, that nothing will ever be the same after that page is turned and we step into that. And Advent is really then the beginning of an impatient anticipation, uh, waiting for what comes, knowing something great is coming, but we're not quite there yet. Now, none of us has ever had the opportunity to live in a pre-Christmas world. And so I want you to turn the calendar back a few millennia and to imagine what it was like before the Christmas event occurred. And I want to take you back specifically into the days of King Solomon, a man who kept a diary of reflections on the frustrations of life. We know it in our Old Testament as the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, he he muses about what life is like under the sun. And he kind of restricts himself mostly to that view of life. Uh, life as it's lived down here on earth. Kind of separated from what God may do. Just what it looks like here. And so he talks about the pursuits of wealth and health and pleasure and wisdom and the meaning of life itself. And in that journal, perhaps one of the best-known sections in it is, occurs in chapter 3, and it was immortalized in song years ago by Pete Seeger and became a, a hit by the, by the uh, group The Birds. It's the song Turn, Turn, Turn. Maybe you've heard that. Uh, I think it's been on the radio a few times. Um, but in Ecclesiastes 3, it's really, really where that comes from. In fact, the, the song is remarkable in that it's pretty much just a quotation of it with other added lyrics too, but it really sticks closely to the text. And in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon gets to that point where he begins to look at how life and time unfold for us under the sun. And here's what he says, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he begins to show the interplay here, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war 
and a time for peace. So Solomon at this point says, this is what life is like under the sun. Like it or not, each of these times comes to us in the course of life, whether we're prepared for them or not. And they, they come one day follows after the other. Sunrise to sunset, Saturday to Sunday, uh, Sunday to Saturday, January to December, 365, 24-7, the whole thing. And, and the view that Solomon presents us to here about time is, is sort of that cyclical, classical view of, of how things occur, that over and over life just seems to occur. God is sovereign, he is mysterious though, and we kind of live in this cycle of never-ending occurrences in our life. And it seems rather dismal, doesn't it, the way that he frames it in that section. I was reminded about uh, how, we can, uh, how, we, how we approach life like that when I read a, a news story a couple weeks ago I saw a woman from Fenton, Michigan, had been arrested for intoxicated driving, and they knew that there was something wrong when she went around the roundabout six times in a row. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's how sometimes our life feels to us, doesn't it? It's just around and around, you know, get up and make the donuts or get up and make the coffee, whatever it is. You get up and again and again and again. But here's the marvelous thing about what Solomon does at this point. And it's just kind of a crack in the door, but it's there. He gets to the end of that, and then when he gets to verse 9, he begins to suggest that, that, that there is a realm that transcends the under-the-sun thing. And so listen to what he writes then following that, beginning in verse 9. He says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Now, he doesn't give us a lot of hope about the way time unfolds, but he does suggest something, that God is behind the veil at work, that God is up to something. We just don't really know what it is. We know he's doing something. He's fulfilling his purposes. He's being faithful. And when Solomon gets to verse 11 there, and then especially in verses 14 and 15, he introduces to us this mystery of the fact that God is at work and 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 unfolding his purposes behind the scenes, kind of like that man behind the curtain. And it's this, this, this humming softly in the background of our lives that God's up to something. And of course, the lingering question for us is, what is God up to? And so for Solomon and many generations after him, there would be this wait, this wait as the cycle of history just seemed to continue over and over and over again. For Israel, that meant living within that cycle and that time of waiting for a thousand years after Solomon. They'd already waited before, they wait again, but then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the cycle and the circle seems to be broken. And I can't think of any better verse from the New Testament to kind of depict that than what Paul writes in Galatians 4 when he says, but when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The fullness of time. 
And all of a sudden, God steps into that. All of a sudden, this circular way of looking at history becomes more linear. All of a sudden, it's as though God says, okay, here's the starting point, and just hold on and wait to see what comes as time passes from here. And so then we begin to see time in a very different way. It's not just a cycle of time. It's almost like a crescendo, getting greater in brilliance and glory as we pass through it and as God unveils what he's doing. That God is working, that God is acting, his purposes are coming to be, and at least part of the wait is over because God has stepped in and broken the circle. Well, the Advent season anticipates the arrival of that inbreaking. Advent is the anticipation of what the Jewish world had been waiting for. The prophets had spoken for the world up to that time about many things that the Jewish people were waiting for, and in fact, the whole world was waiting for. The prophets had spoken about the judgments on their own sin that they were waiting to see happen, which isn't always a great prospect of waiting. They were waiting for the deliverance that they had from certain exiles that came their way, whether it was from Egypt or whether it was from Assyria or Babylon or Persia or wherever they happened to be in exile at the time. They were waiting for, most of all, the kingdom and its Messiah. And so what Christmas symbolizes for us as we move from Advent into that celebration of Christmas is not just a celebration of a birth, but it's a celebration of the end of the wait that God had been at work and in the fullness of time he has brought his purposes uh, to bear fruit in a way that we could see. Again, we've, we've always been awaiting people. I don't mean just us, but mankind in general. God's people are not. We've been a people who have been waiting ever since Genesis 3.15, really. Ever since man rebelled in the garden and God said to the serpent, I will meaning somewhere down the line, put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. God said, he shall, meaning sometime in the future, bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And ever since that time, we've been waiting for the work of the serpent to be conquered. And the waiting continued. And you can read through the biblical stories and see it time and time again. You can read the story, for instance, of Abram who from the initial promise of God that he would bear a, bear a child, a son, and be the father of a great nation, he waited 25 years for this. And when the initial promise came, he was already 75 years of age. He's got to be thinking, how long can we wait on this? This is really not going to happen. But in God's time, of course, it did. Moses waiting until he was at the ripe age of 80 to be called to be God's deliverer of his people from their exile and their oppression in Egypt. Israel itself waiting 430 years as a people to be delivered from that Egyptian oppression. Israel waiting again later some 400 years from the final voice heard from the prophet Malachi until the cry of John the Baptist in the wilderness and the announcement of this kingdom that was finally coming. We've been awaiting people. And we get to Luke's gospel this morning, which we're going to look at. I promise we're going to get there. I know you've been waiting patiently for that. Um, in Luke chapter 2, there's, there's this, this theme of waiting really envelops the first couple of chapters at least of the Gospel of Luke in the pacing and in the detail of Luke's opening chapters. Because if you, if you look through there, you've got the initial, uh, the, the start of Luke's Gospel in chapter 1, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are a couple who are doing what? 
waiting for a child. They've been barren, not been able to have a child. And, and after all this waiting, God steps in and says, guess what? Plan on something in about nine months. You're going to be delightfully surprised. And you pick up in the early chapters of Luke the slow pacing of Elizabeth's pregnancy and then Zechariah's inability to speak until finally his tongue is loosed and we get to discover after our waiting as the reader what his name will be. There's this waiting from the announcement to Mary until the child's birth. There's the waiting of these two pregnancies of Elizabeth and Mary side by side in the birth accounts. And it's interesting the way that, that Luke layers those and shuffles them back and forth. And you're, as the reader, waiting and you can feel the tension being created as we're waiting for from the announcement times until the birth of both of these children. And even after the birth of Jesus then, there's another unexpected wait that steps into the picture. And that's where we're going to land the text we heard read just a moment ago, Luke chapter 2. And I want to back up just a little further to verse 22 and read again through that section to set the stage of, of this one who pops on the scene, a guy we haven't heard mentioned before, but who depicts so much of our waiting. It says in Luke two twenty-two, and when the time came, meaning that there was a waiting period there, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, They, and this is Mary and Joseph, of course, with the child Jesus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, the law lined out a number of different offerings for a newborn son, a child, and this was just one of them, and so Luke's kind of picked that out to say, uh, this is not your high-income couple. These people didn't have much. This was what they offered. Verse 25, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that, through, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And that points to another waiting, which we may mention just briefly at the tail end of this. So there's this guy, Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel. We don't know a lot about him. We've not been introduced to him before. We're not told much other than what the passage here reveals. There are many who guess that he was an aged guy, but uh, we don't know for sure. But we do note this about him, according to what Luke tells us, that he was morally pure and ceremonially impeccable. He was righteous and devout. And he is described as a man who is waiting. He's waiting. William Barclay, the great New Testament scholar from a couple generations ago by now, tells us that uh, Simeon was most likely one of those who's described as 
the quiet in the land, a class of, of Jewish folks who were waiting for the arrival of God's kingdom just in any way God wanted to do it. Because you see, there were a lot of different ideas out there about how God's kingdom was going to be coming and how the Messiah would arrive and how the Jewish people would rise to the top and all other nations would bow before them. Most Jewish folks believed that there would be some kind of a military, actual physical military intervention that would cause this to be. And so some supposed that it would be a great celestial army which would drop down out of heaven and slay the enemies of Israel. Some felt that God himself would reach down with a mighty arm and, and uh, slay their enemies and bring them to a, a place of importance. Some believed that a king from David's line would rise up and lead the people in military victory. But then there were these people who were known as the quiet in the land who said, we don't know how it's going to happen. We're just waiting. We just know it's going to come. And this may be very well who Simeon was. He was a, a man who, who could nod his head in assent as he read those words from Solomon, Ecclesiastes 3, that, yeah, God makes all things beautiful in his time. God's up to something. We just don't know when and where, but we know it's going to happen. Verse 25 and 26 of the text there in Luke 2 states that Simeon was waiting for a very specific thing, the consolation of Israel, and that was not a pipe dream for him. He was waiting with faith. He was waiting, not in an idle way, but waiting with assurance, waiting in a holy setting. It describes him again as righteous and devout means that he was living in holiness as he was waiting. You see, because there's a very big difference between idleness and waiting. Idleness is this period of inactivity which has no real purpose or plan or urgency. And so we might say we're waiting, but we're really just kind of twiddling our thumbs and not doing anything. But then there is this waiting that is an anticipation and a readiness that says, yeah, I don't know the timetable, and I don't know exactly all the details, but I know that coming around that corner is something big. And I'm waiting actively. Holy waiting is actively doing what I know to do while the very things that I don't know what to do yet, I commit those to prayer and patience and trust God in the waiting. But while I'm waiting, I do all the other things I know to do. Holy waiting is an acknowledgement of, I think, three things. Number one, that something is missing. Number two, that that which is missing is coming. And number three, that something that is coming is better than the status quo. And so we wait in holiness for things to happen. And that's where Simeon is. Luke's already given us clues that 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 waiting is an important thing to wait for because he's mentioned throughout the first two chapters the announcement of who this child will be. In addition to who John would be, in addition to that Jesus, who he would be. The word of Gabriel to Mary in chapter 1. The prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 1. The angel of the Lord's announcement to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And we as the reader wait alongside with Simeon, waiting for the fulfilling of the promise, waiting to see what would happen. And for a moment, let's take a look at what Simeon experiences as he waits, because this can inform for us not only the waiting that we have as the holidays approach, but in all of our lives. There are a couple of things that result from Simeon's waiting, and they are basically this, the presence and the peace of God. The very presence of God and the very peace of God. You see, for Simeon, the waiting was, it was a tension, but it didn't seem to create any anxiety. You don't pick that up, at least in a superficial reading of the text, 
And certainly in his words, you see one who is just content to wait until things happen. Certainly he's, he's waiting with, with an anxiousness, but not an anxiety. He can't wait to see what God will do. He waits with eyes open. We're told this too, that he, he didn't wait alone. It says clearly in the text that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And so the very presence of God dwelt with him so that we too, when we wait through the things of life, we don't ever wait alone. The Holy Spirit is with us as children of God. Because of that waiting, then, with the presence of God, the time of waiting itself can actually be a blessing. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. Sometimes waiting is the most painful part of life, and yet there is something to be found in that in which God can do marvelous work. I want to suggest to you something else that's counterintuitive to our idea of waiting is this, that as you go through those periods of waiting, to cherish times of silence and solitude. Because it's in those moments of silence and solitude that as you draw closer to God, you will find that he is able to step deeper into your life and provide strengthening for you so that when the time of waiting is over and the promise comes and that which has been planned by God is fulfilled, it's even more glorious because he's been preparing us in that time. See, I think there's a temptation. I know I've done this, and maybe you have too, that when I've gone through times of waiting in my life, I'm tempted to gather around me in those times of waiting all kinds of other things to kind of distract me from the waiting itself. Noise, busyness, all of those things to fill the empty space of my waiting. And what we find out is that that doesn't really fill anything. It just confuses us and leaves us unprepared for when God does step in and say, okay, here it is. Because we haven't prepared ourselves to know. Instead, I think, in those times of waiting, it's important that we pay attention to his presence, that he is with us, that we sit with him, that we listen to him, that we will be with him. I love what David writes in Psalm 62, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. See, when we wait in the presence of God, as we wait, he's able to create space for us to hear him. He's able to create things in our souls that we can't create on our own. He's able to create in us an anticipation of what is most important, and he's able to create in us a clarification of what is less important. So that as the time passes, we're being prepared for when the waiting is over. And what do we discover in Simeon's case that I think will be true of us too? That as we wait in the presence of God, trusting him, drawing close to him, then when the time of waiting ends, and even before that, the peace of God is there. We experience a peace that scripture describes in other places as a perfect peace, a peace that passes understanding. Did you note Simeon's first words when he held the child Jesus? Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. It's only happening because the presence of God was attended to and and he could prepare me for that and he creates peace in those times of waiting. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, commenting about our waiting times in the times of Advent, writes this. He says, Advent can be celebrated only by those whose souls give them no peace 
who know that they are poor and incomplete and who sense something of the greatness that is supposed to come before which they can only bow in humble timidity, waiting until he inclines himself toward us. You see, there is something about in those waiting times, opening ourselves up to God, surrendering to him so that he can prepare us for that. It's only when we realize that we can't in our own flesh wait, when we can't in our own flesh be patient, when we can't in our own flesh be at peace, that he can then step in and supply those things for us and teach us and prepare us and give to us a peace even in the waiting before the waiting is done. Now, we've thrown around a lot of uh, theoretical things. Uh, how does this hit life? What, what ways do we wait in life? And I'm going to suggest three ways that we wait in our lives that, that this can be helpful to us. We wait certainly during uh, a number of life experiences that we encounter, whether it's dealing with, with illness or financial struggle or relationship struggles or, or whatever it is. And secondly, we wait for the culmination of God's work in the recreation, the return of Christ and the making new of all things. We all wait for that. And how do we handle ourselves in waiting for that? And then thirdly, just quite practically and more immediately, as we wait for Christmas, how do we navigate these next few weeks until we get to that place? I want to suggest that each of these waiting aspects of life can create anxiety. But the waiting can be a time of blessing as we remember that We have a promise, and we have his presence, and he supplies his peace. So let's tackle, first of all, waiting during life's experiences. Uh, Some of you are in that place right now. You're not sure what the next step is. You're not sure what the next event to unfold is. You're not sure what's ahead. There's no date circled on the calendar. You're not sure what God is going to be doing in the future, and you're really at that point of wanting to almost idly wait. Simeon, I mentioned that text at the end of Luke 2, that section there, that he talks to Mary about this, this ominous note of, of that Jesus would be the rising and the falling of many in Israel, and that a, pierce, uh, a sword would pierce through her heart also. You've got to imagine what's going through her mind when she hears those words. Waiting for that, what's, what's that all about? As we wait in life's experiences, how do we wait? We draw near to the one who can wait with us. Let me turn your attention to Isaiah chapter 40. There's this marvelous section in which the nation of Israel is called to find some comfort in their days of waiting. They'd been through a number of different things, a lot of it driven by their own sinfulness and into times of exile. In Isaiah chapter 40, a fairly familiar passage to a lot of us perhaps, The prophet, speaking for God, says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? This is verse 27 of Isaiah 40. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They're feeling to be a people who are alienated and separated from God. God says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, so he's always at work. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
I should notice, especially in that last verse, the mixture of waiting and activity. We wait for the Lord, and we wait in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, there's a couple of things going on there. One of them is to understand this. The word wait here really carries the idea of trusting. It's not, again, it's not this idleness. It's, it's leaning into God, trusting him in that time of waiting. And, and what does the prophet imply that we do in those times of waiting for the Lord? That God is at work, and so he's at work in us and through us, and we should be at work. That there's still activity going on here. That, that though we're waiting and we're not certain about what this, what, what this next event is going to be, what this next turn in our life is going to be, we do know a lot of other things. We do know things we're supposed to pray about and, and acts of service that we can render. We do know what we should be involved in in terms of worship. We do know things we need to repent for. We do know people that need encouraged. We do know things that we can do to express our love to those around us. And so as we wait, we do the things we do know to do and trust him with the things that we don't know about. And as we live for him and in him, he begins to develop that peace in us as we wait. And it's really similar in that other aspect of waiting, the second one I mentioned, that waiting for the completion of God's recreation of Christ's return and all things being made new again. It's also the ideal of, uh, of God saying, well, here's what you know to do. Do this as you do it and be salt and light right where you are. Paul talks about that too as he writes to the Thessalonian Christians in a couple of his letters in the New Testament. They were a people who felt that they were poised right on the edge of the return of Christ, some even believing that he'd already returned. And so they were kind of shifting into this neutral mode where they, where they said, well, you know, if Christ is already returned or is very close to coming, I guess I can just kind of retire early and wait. And they meant in the idle way. And what does Paul say? And in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, he says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since... We belong to the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, this hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. You don't cash it in yet. You keep living for him. And even says it more clearly in the third chapter of his second letter, in verses 11 through 13, when he calls some folks to task who had just sort of checked out. Verse 11 of Second Thessalonians 3 says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. And as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And we don't know the timetable. We don't know exactly how it's going to unfold. We know that we're called to be salt and light in a dying world. We know that we're called to be like those virgins Jesus spoke of in the parable who need to have their lamps ready and lit so that when he returns, we're ready to go with him. And what about that third element of waiting? Waiting as Christmas comes. Well, the counsel that I just shared with you is is still applicable there too. To wait actively, to serve, 
to be a light in this season to those who are around us. But I would also want to press a little bit upon this this activity of finding silence and solitude amidst the madness of the Christmas season to really hear what God has done in the incarnation of Jesus. You know, this time of year can get nuts, can it? I mean, in every way. We, we overdo everything. We eat too much. We drink too much. We spend too much. We do too much. We do all those things. And so we have gatherings and parties and programs and shopping and movies and shows, and we do all these things. And, and I'm not here to squelch the celebration. All of that's fine in moderation. But what happens is we get so busy in that that we find it very hard to, uh, to carve out a space where we can just be still and know that he is God, that we can wait upon him, that we can listen to him, that we can reflect upon what he's done. I've put uh, on the sermon outline at the bottom a number of scriptures that could help you in those quiet times during this Advent season. Uh, Some of them are directly Christmas-type passages, and some of them aren't, but they have to do with waiting for the things that God has for us ahead. Waiting is that lost art. And, And waiting will rob us if we, if we don't wait as God calls us to, we really get robbed of the opportunity to enjoy the things that God has provided for us. And I love the way, again, back to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he talks about this. He, he basically says that, that when we refuse to wait as God wants us to wait, it's like a person grabbing a, a green fruit before it's ready to be eaten and what that experience is like. Here's how he says it. Waiting is an art that our impatient age has forgotten. It wants to break open the ripe fruit when it has hardly finished planting the shoot. But all too often, the greedy eyes are only deceived. The fruit that seems so precious is still green on the inside, and disrespectful hands ungratefully toss aside what has so disappointed them. Whoever does not know the austere blessedness of waiting, that is, of hopefully doing without will never experience the full blessing of fulfillment. And so we're given this time to wait. And, and again, not only in Christmas, but waiting for the Lord's return and waiting on things in life to unfold in a different way. That, that is a gift to us, to in that waiting, allow God for his purposes to unfold and for us to hear him and to walk with him. I was thinking about this message uh, well, not just last night, because I didn't just sit down last night and do it. I know you think preachers do that sometimes. But um, but as I've been thinking about it over the last few weeks, and yesterday, just yesterday, I was thinking about the Hebrews 11 passage, this great, this great uh, uh, roster of faithful people from the Old Testament. I was thinking about all of those characters that are listed in Hebrews 11, and you might want to read it later today. Characters of the biblical drama that all live before Jesus. And the Hebrews writer really isn't about so much their waiting, but it's also kind of in there at the end of the chapter that, that they waited and they never saw what Simeon saw. They never got to see what we see. But they were still blessed. And they were influential. And they walked with God. And so their waiting was not in vain. See, we as waiting people are, are kind of like people who are engaged you know, when the ring goes on the finger and, and the date is set. Uh, waiting for the wedding to come. There's a joy 
when we receive the ring. And there's a joy in the waiting before the wedding. Just in and of that self, there's that joy. But we know that there's an even greater joy when the day the groom comes to make us his own. And so we can enjoy both of those. As you wade deeper into the season, I want to encourage you to remember a few things as we draw closer and closer to celebrating the birth of Jesus. Remember, first of all, we have a song to sing to the world. And so you celebrate that story. Let the world see it. I want you to remember also that we have a story to tell to our neighbors and family, and so we need to share that. That this is the reason for this season that we celebrate. This is the one it's about. And he wasn't just a child born, but he was God in flesh, and he has come to redeem the brokenness of our world and to restore us to a God that we've been in rebellion to. And then to remember also that we have a life to live in devotion to him. That we, like Simeon, are called to be righteous and devout, seeking to be holy before him. As we wait, we do that. And then when the waiting's over, it'll be more blessed than we could ever imagine. Father, we come to you this, this morning confessing it's, it's very hard for us to wait. Um, we, uh, we perhaps sometimes grow in, in a little bit bitter because we know you get to see the end result and we don't. And so our waiting seems to be, uh, it's, it seems to be unfair to us. And Father, uh, I pray that you would teach us how to lean into you better, to trust in you in it better, uh, to know that that you are at work and everything is beautiful in its own time and, and your timing is perfect. I pray for those, God, this morning who, who feel like their world is just really broken to a, a place that they've never seen before and, and the waiting is, is painful. I pray that somehow that uh, you'd bring the light of your strength into that, remind them of your presence and begin to sow peace into their lives. And help us as believers in Jesus, as your children, to in these coming days uh, be people who are light and salt wherever we may go. That don't know all the details of the end, but we know whose we are. We know where we're headed. We know what we're about. We know who lives in us. And we know the truth that has saved us. So your blessing, Father, upon this church family, upon each of us as we walk with you, and upon the world around us as we, as we share light and salt with them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand with me? As Dave was preaching, I thought my, uh, my communion meditation was working better and better as we went through. Uh, I thought a lot about uh, what I need to focus on uh, in this Christmas season and one of the things that came to my mind was kind of a new teaching strategy that we're uh, exploring across the nation and one of those things that uh, we're exploring is the thought of boredom uh, and I know that at school boredom is a bad word to say that you've let your student become bored 
but there's a lot of research showing that individuals who allow themselves to be quote-unquote bored are usually highly inventive and creative people. Uh, I'll share a couple of stories with you. You probably are familiar with a man named Nikolai Tesla. Tesla uh, was the pioneer of alternating current electricity. He and Thomas Edison actually battled one another to try to develop the electricity that would power New York City. Um, Thomas Edison actually started these small genera generating stations in New York to develop DC power, direct current, and he said it was much safer. But what Tesla realized was that his alternating current electricity could be used over longer distances and for more specific applications. And one of the applications that he really worked hard on was an alternating current electric motor. And this idea of boredom comes in with Tesla in the fact that he would take office hours during the day and tell his staff, don't disturb me. And he would set and do what he called mind experiments. He would do mental experiments. He could think about how that electricity would course through the wiring of that motor and how the magnets would react to that current, and then how the uh, shaft inside that motor would turn. And believe it or not, after a few weeks of thinking this project through, he went to the bench and he built a motor that worked. The motor itself wasn't the perfect motor, but it proved his theories that he had thought of. And that, that came from those mo moments of quote-unquote boredom, that vision that he had. Um, some of you guys may know that I, I like to think I'm artistic, but I, I realized pretty quickly that I'm not that great, so I had to marry an artist so that I could uh, be fulfilled in that art area. Um, but when we would go through these classes, uh, one of the things I had an art instructor that uh, taught that if you had a, a painting that you wanted to paint or a sculpture that you wanted to make, um, that you needed to think about it first. And you'd have these students that would come in and they'd be really eager to go and get started. And he'd say, no, you haven't thought about this long enough yet. If you study the old masters, uh, one of the things that's amazing about them, they could envision their painting and then they could execute it. And it's because they envisioned that painting in such great detail. And so what I want to challenge us to do in this time of great celebration and, and rejoicing through the Christmas season, but more specifically in this time of communion, I would like to take this time of communion to think very, very specifically about our God, the God that touched your heart and sparked it into beating, the God that touched the stars and made them shine. I would like you to take a moment of boredom and think about, about that God sitting down with you and eating this meal. I'd like you to think about the hands of Jesus breaking that bread and sharing that glass, that cup. Uh, I'd like you to think specifically about those people that are those guiding forces in your spiritual life and the times that they took communion. And I'd like to think, take the time to really focus in on what it means to us in this very moment and how we can share that with God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray to thank you for uh, this great creation, this mind that you've given us, that we can explore 
uh, and, and think and envision you with us. That in this time that we can eat a meal with you and that we can remember the spilled blood and the broken body. That we can envision those things that are so important in our spiritual lives. I pray that you would put your hands on us this week as we go through, and I pray that this meal would would strengthen us for this week to come. In your name we pray. Amen.